Warning, this episode contains discussion of alleged police violence resulting in the death of infants. There is also mention of child neglect and abuse. This episode is intended for mature audiences only. Please take care while listening. There's an old adage in the newspaper business where a city editor sticks his thumbs in his suspenders and looks out the window during a snowstorm. There's eight feet of snow. The buses aren't moving. The horses aren't moving. And he says to the city editors, not a fit night out for man nor beast. Quick, sit out a photographer. In my early days of journalism, they kind of felt that photographers were add-ons. And I always said to reporters that, you know, you don't have to be here to write the story. You can get another guy's notes and copy them. I got to be here to get the image. This is episode five, The Meaning of Life. My name is James Link Jr. At the time of move, I was a recently hired photographer at the Philadelphia Inquirer. I started there April 22, 1973. They had 23 white photographers when I came to the Inquirer. Inquirer, there had been no black photographers. A year after I got here, they made me the shop steward. But in the beginning, they didn't want to hire no black nothings. I think we had, at the time, two black reporters, Bill Thompson and Asel Moore. The racism of Philadelphia was present in the newspapers, the Bulletin and the Inquirer exactly the same way. I think the Bulletin had one black photographer, Don Camp. It's mid-morning on a Wednesday in September, and photographer James Link has come to my Philadelphia Airbnb to talk about his personal experience with Moo. I was doing a street gang story on the West Philly gang, the 32nd and Haverford, Haverford gang, and that was not but a few blocks from Moo's headquarters at 33rd and Pearl Street. I occasioned to meet people that told me about the move folks, and in my spare time, I would go over and see what they were all about with their long dreaded hair. And I met a few of them, talked to them socially. I didn't try and take their picture. At that time, they were washing cars out in front of their premises for money, whatever, $5, $10, whatever. And I kept seeing basically the same people. I'd see Jerry Africa out there. I'd see Delbert. There was a young lady who lived down the street. I think her name was Pat. Three of them were my most contacts for a conversation at that move location in Powhatan. Was the woman named Pat or Jeanette? Could it be Jeanette Patterson? Patton? Jeanette Patton? Could have been. Could have been. But I had her phone number. It was like 222, bearing two exchange. And she lived on Pearl Street across from them. So that would be the 3200 block of Pearl. Okay, hold on one sec. I I got a picture for you. I'm handing my laptop to James. On the screen is a photo from 1977, taken in front of MOVE headquarters. Yeah, that's she. What her name? That's Jeanette Patton. Okay, Jeanette Patton. I had her phone number. She would call me, and then sometimes she would call, and Delbert would be on the line. I'd talk to him. Jeanette Patton also went by her maiden name of Jeanette Knighton. She was a mother of two that lived in Powelton Village and was publicly known in the neighborhood as a MOVE sympathizer. Jeanette becomes Pam Africa, MOVE's Minister of Confrontation, six years after the deadliest MOVE confrontation in May of 1985. James Link is the first of my sources to indicate that Jeanette was involved with MOVE and acting as an operative more than a year earlier than she herself has claimed was her entry point into MOVE. May 20th, 1977, Guns on the Porch. And what did you understand MOVE to be at that time? As far as an organization, 
to me, they just looked like an overextended family of black people that had long hair and were back to nature and radical. They didn't seem to me to be pro-communist or Marxist or let's fight America with weapons or any of that. They were just some, some strange black people that lived how they lived and wanted the freedom to do what they wanted to do. Whether they paid taxes on their property or followed L&I regulations, they didn't care about any of that stuff. They were just there because they were there and they did what they did because that's what they decided they wanted to do. And they wanted to be left alone. And basically that might have worked if they stayed there, but they wandered throughout the city. They went to city hall. They went to courtrooms. They marched and demonstrated, had placards, and generally got into white people's faces and were disruptive. They invited me a couple of times to different things they were having and calling to complain about the police this, the, the, the authorities that, Rizzo this. It wasn't my forte. It wasn't a news item, you know, but when he called the night we took the photo of Dead Baby Life Africa, he said to me specifically, you're not going to be wasting your time. The story of Dead Baby Life Africa is a significant, tragic event in the 50-year history of MOVE. Here are some clips of MOVE members telling the story of Baby Life Africa. This first clip is from the only adult MOVE member to escape from the headquarters on May 13, 1985, Ramona Johnson Africa. May 13th was not the first time that MOVE babies were killed by this system. In 1976, March of 1976, Phil and Janine Africa lost a baby. Their their three-week-old baby boy was knocked from Janine's arms and trampled to death by police. This audio clip is from 2015. Longtime MOVE member Carlos Perez Africa is sitting right next to Ramona at this event and continues on with the story. When they attacked our house at 2 or 3 in the morning and killed uh, Janine and Phil's baby, Life Africa, they crushed the baby's head. And the next day, them cops came out, several cops came out and said they had dropped their police hat and nightstick. And they said, can we get our hat and nightstick back? They actually came to our headquarters after killing our babies and beating our family members and locking them up. And we told them no. We have actual pictures of the the helmet and everything that we took, and you know, and it was put out in the press. You know, when that when that situation had happened, and to this day now, to this day now, not one cop has ever been charged with murder. And one of the things that they were saying was that. There was no baby that was killed in there because we didn't have a birth certificate. Uh-huh. Our women were having babies since they came to move at at our headquarters. They was having babies home naturally. They was having babies at our house naturally by themselves to this day now. And we going back to the early 70s and we now in 2015. Our women, our young move members, the females, still having babies home naturally. Without birth certificates. Home births and birth certificates means that 13-year-old children in MOVE giving birth is hidden from authorities. We shared this in Season 1, Episode 14. This is Pam Africa on May 13th, 2021. Three-week-old Life Africa was murdered on March 26th, March 16th, 1976. He was snatched out his mother's arms and a baby fell to the ground and bust his head wide open. 
Children born in Tamuv are told the story of Life Africa. This is Rain. She was born 24 years after the birth and death of Life Africa. There were move members coming home from a stint in the Philadelphia County Jail. And they were coming home and they were being greeted. And people had like boxes of raw food. And later in the night, apparently one of the neighbors had called, quote unquote, called for a complaint. The police came for a noise complaint. And a couple broke out after a small argument. And in the midst of it, the baby was knocked out of the hands and trampled by the police as they were beating on news members and throwing them into paddy wagons. The story just stopped there. Then it jumped to they had baby life bodies. They invited reporters to come see the body to see what police officers had been doing to move women and children. And that's all they ever talked about. And that's all we were told to repeat. Move put the death of Baby Life Africa in their self-published booklet, 25 Years on the Move. Page 13, heading, Move Baby Murdered. I will summarize. Move says on March 28, 1976, that seven male Move members are released from the local jail. And when they get back to Move headquarters in the early morning hours after midnight, they're celebrating when cops show up for a noise disturbance call and start pushing and attacking them. They say that MOVE members suffer fractured skulls, concussions, and chipped bones. Now I'm going to directly quote. Janine Africa was trying to protect her husband, Phil Africa, when she was grabbed by a cop, thrown to the ground with three-week-old life Africa in her arms, and stomped until she was nearly unconscious. The baby's skull was crushed. The next morning, MOVE notified the media that police had brutally attacked them and that a baby had been murdered. Unquote. We cross-reference all accounts, in documents, public reporting, interviews. And with March 28, 1976 being such a pivotal moment from Move's own narrative, we have been combing through every detail we can find. We do our research, but we really like to talk to people directly. Especially in this case, it would make sense to start with the parents of baby life. Unfortunately, that can't happen with the father, William Phillips, a.k.a. Phil Africa. He died in prison in 2015 while serving his sentence for the murder of Officer James Ramp in 1978. Baby Life's mother, Janine Smith, a.k.a. Janine Africa, was released on parole in May 2019. I reached out to her, but have yet to receive a response. Move said that it went to the media first about Baby Life. So let's start there with public reporting. The Philadelphia Inquirer, Monday, March 29th. Headline. West Philadelphia commune members clash with police, six held. Byline, Mark Shogel and John J. Terry. The story basically says that the cops say that Move attacked them with bricks. Move says cops attacked them, unprovoked with police batons. Cops are treated for minor injuries. Move refuses medical attention. Move alleges that cops killed baby life. When the police are asked about baby life's death, They say they never saw baby life. And, quote, We went out to interview Janine, but we spoke to Sue Africa. We cannot find Janine because MOVE members say she is attending to the funeral of the baby. Merle Africa tells the reporters, quote, The baby was taken care of. He didn't have on fancy clothes. He didn't have no embalming. He was taken out in the country, put in a blanket, and left. 
unquote. Merle Africa declines to further identify the location of the rights. Monday, March 29th, Janine is back out in front of MOVE headquarters, consenting to being photographed and interviewed by the Inquirer. Tuesday, March 30th, 1976, headline, MOVE Commune Mourns Death of Baby. Byline, Murray Dubin, photographer, Robert L. Rooney. There's a photo, and the caption reads, Move members from left, Berta, Janine, and Merle Africa give their version of the incident. Berta is, of course, Alberta. They're all sitting on the ground, and Janine is looking down and has her arms kind of crossed around her with her face down into her hands, and Alberta seems to be talking to Merle. I'm going to start at Janine's account to the reporters. Quote, all of a sudden, a lot of cop cars came, she said. They had blackjacks. Dawn Africa interrupted her account. This is Donald Glassy, the white co-founder of Move, and said that Chuck Africa had told the police before any of the violence began, quote, we're sick and tired of you people. Leave us the blank alone, unquote. After that, Dawn Africa said, Bedlam followed. Janine Africa said, next thing I know, they were beating people and had their guns pointed at everybody. Janine had gone outside with her husband, Phil, and her son to greet the returning members. The police had not been grabbing women or children, Janine Africa said. So she stood in front of her husband to protect him, her baby in her arms. The cops were going crazy, swinging, dot, dot, dot. They tried to reach over me to get my husband, with no regard for me or my baby. They pushed me so hard that I fell. Cops stepped all over me and on me. She said she did not see which policeman pushed her. She is not sure what happened after the altercation, which lasted 20 minutes, according to MOVE members and their neighbors, or after police rearrested several of the MOVE members. Other members said they did not know where Janine was and did not discover her in the basement of their house until they heard her crying about an hour later. Her dead baby, apparently crushed by the weight of its mother's body, was still in her arms, they said. I remember looking up in the basement, and people were looking at me, said Janine Africa, who also has a two-year-old son. All I know is when I was holding the baby, the baby was dead. After that, a move contingent wrapped the baby in a blanket and, quote, took it to a sacred place, a place in the country where we laid it upon the ground, said Dawn Africa. At the Temple Archives, Bob found surveillance reports from civil affairs of the Philadelphia Police Department, showing that officers went out to move headquarters to try to interview Janine and to try to see the baby, but only got information from other members. Move is known for having court date after court date after court date. And this particular week is no different. There were three scheduled court dates for both Monday and Tuesday of this week, the 29th and 30th. I know this because they're documented by civil affairs reports. A MOVE member is in courtroom 146 for a 1975 assault and battery charge on a police officer. Courtroom 456. Eight MOVE members appealing their contempt of court charges to the Pennsylvania State Supreme Court in front of seven justices. In both cases, the murder of baby life is brought up by MOVE members. 
derailing the actual cases they're there for. Court Justice Nix does order the district attorney to investigate. That night, Monday, May 29th, the 16th District Precinct of the Philadelphia Police Department receives a phone call from an alleged MOVE member threatening to bomb the district. The next day, another MOVE member, going by South Africa, is scheduled to appear and does on a 1975 armed burglary charge. The courtroom is full of spectators that are MOVE members. And again, MOVE brings up that the cops murdered baby life. There's all these disruptions, and the judge delays the case yet again. Back at MOVE headquarters, members are out front of the house in front of big handwritten signs saying that the cops killed Janine's baby. So all of this and more is happening between just Sunday, March 28th, and Friday, April 2nd. But there's no sign of baby life, alive or dead. It is now Friday, April 2nd, 1976, late afternoon. This is photographer James Link. So I was editing whatever had to be edited that that evening when I got the phone call from Delbert. Delbert is Delbert Orr Africa, Minister of Defense for MOVE. Spoke to Mr. Gary Haynes, my immediate supervisor, and told him I need to leave. If something happened over at MOVE, they called me. He told me it would be worth my while. Well, you're not leaving the building. Uh, and then finally, I said, it might be something, and you might blow it. So that's when they came up with the great idea. Well, you take a reporter with you. And then next thing I know, Ellen walked in, and she says, I've been assigned by the city desk to go with you to wherever you're going to move. What's up with that? I told her, I don't know. They called me, told me they got a live one. I should come. That's how we left and went over there. Ellen is Ellen Karasik, Philadelphia Inquirer reporter. She was a professional reporter. You know, she handled her business and she, she was reliable. We worked well together on other assignments prior to that problem. I was not going to let anything happen to her. Like, I'm 6'4". At that time, I was maybe 230. I was born and raised in Harlem. So I'm not going to let nobody hurt me or anybody I'm with. Now, I'm going to jump back over to Move's self-published book, 25 Years on the Move, page 13. Quote, to prove the death to a skeptical media, MOVE invited the press and local politicians to dinner at their headquarters. Ellen and I got into my car, drove over to the location. I parked out front. It was a quiet neighborhood. People might have been coming from work or going to the store. There was an unmarked police car parked right across the street from the front entrance of MOVE on 33rd Street, where there was always a police car parked at. So there was nothing strange. It was just another day at the MOVE headquarters building at that time. And uh, we waited as the others gathered. Lucian Blackwell, city councilman, his wife, Janie Blackwell. There was another city councilman, Joseph Coleman. And there was a man from the Human Relations Commission, Reverend Rennie Morgan. All of us were gathered out on the Pearl Street side. I asked James to give me as much visual detail as he can remember. It's a basic single-family dwelling, a single-family house, a stone foundation, bricks going up past the first floor, wooden windows where there were windows. There was grass around it, but it had not been manicured, so it was just dirt. Past dusk, it was beginning to be early part of nighttime. There was a slight chill in the air, misty, slightly foggy as it would be before rain. A certain amount of time, Delbert came out and told us, let's go down in, in the building. 
Then we were led into the building over a couple of makeshift barricades and trap door type things. As we went into the building, there was a candle in the walkway inside. There was a board you had to step over, maybe a two by eight board. As you started down the steps to the basement, the second step was missing. Delbert cautioned us, now watch that step, step over this, watch that there's a step missing. If you didn't know there was a missing step there, you'd fall right there. So we went down the steps. At the bottom of the steps, there was a like a, a split level or lower level, higher level floor in the basement. On the left, about four to six children were seated at a wooden picnic type table, maybe two or three candles, stick candles at the table with the children, and maybe three or four candles at the table with the invited guests, the press and the politicians. There was no decorations, no furniture that I could see other than the two tables. It was not scary, so to speak, but it was strange. And with the limited vision of the candles, you couldn't see every portion of every room to know if there were people lurking there or animals lurking there or anything like that. My nerves were up. I was vigilant, not hyper-vigilant, just vigilant of what I was seeing. And from the candlelight, one could see a rat scurrying in the corner on the right and one walking on the joist in the ceiling. And they said, don't be afraid. They live here. You know, we don't kill animals. It was a little chilly in there. Like they didn't have a heat source that I that I noticed, no, no boiler, no burner, no no furnace or anything like that. The children were in, in their usual like loincloths or short pants wrapped around themselves. Maybe a t-shirt or two amongst the five or six children that were seated there eating. They had arrayed in front of them a Pyrex type dish, I'd say eight by ten or eight by fourteen inches. And in it, they had raw chicken legs lined up, drumstick to drumstick, fat part to skinny part, just like you would see them in a supermarket uh, tray that you would buy a family pack of chicken legs. They had some carrots, some cabbage, a couple of onions, and these were the things the kids were munching on. To our right, one step up was another picnic table. At that table, the move members had prepared for us fried chicken, steamed rice, steamed spinach, and we were given plates and silverware, and we were served ourselves, round watermelon sitting on the table for dessert. Mid-meal, I was tapped on the shoulder and said, you know, come with me. So I went with him up the steps, reversed reversed the way we came down, back up the steps, watched that top step, and then went in the room and said, there's, there's Life Africa. Five days after the alleged police killing, and moves natural burial, Delbert is presenting the infant's corpse. And in the room was a marigold grapefruit cardboard box. In that box was a fetus of what appeared to be a dead child. I leaned over, it stunk like a decomposing body. Do you have a sense of gender? Not necessarily, no. The way it was laying, it was not legs open, it was like curled in a semi-fetus position like on its side. James is left in the room with the dead baby in the box. And I put my camera together, put the flash on. While Delbert goes to get the rest of the dinner guests. I heard footsteps coming up the stairs. It was the group of the elected officials and the man from the Human Relations Commission, Mr. Morgan. They came into the room. I positioned them to the left of the door. And the box was to the right of the door. 
as I was positioning the people left to right, so to knowing the range of the lens I was using, wide angle, Delbert positioned himself dead center in the photograph. I backed into the corner, had a wide angle lens on my camera, had electronic flash with a bare bulb, and I snapped off a few pictures of the gathered group looking down at the dead baby in the box, alleged dead baby in the box. The flash that I used is what lit up the entire room. So they were basically looking in a box they couldn't see until the flash went off. And then they could see down into the box. And as you look at the photograph with the flash firing, Delbert had the best location to be seen and to see. He was dead center of the group. His eyes were wide open and he, like he was in charge. Who do you think was the most shocked, or was it equal? I mean, it, it was equal. It was, you had the smell, you had the flash bulb. As you focused after the next flash bulb went off, you could see down in the box and see a dead baby in the box. And that's where you see Delbert standing in the center. He knew what was in the box. He was not fascinated by what was in the box. He was making sure he got his face in the, in the, in the picture, I guess. I don't know. I think I shot maybe six to ten frames, basically the same thing from basically the same location in the room. I do not remember if I took a close-up or not. I probably did, but I do not remember. James doesn't see or hear about Janine or her move husband, Phil. Also, there were only about five kids in the basement dinner room. Where were all the other children? And where were the dozen or more adult move members who live at move headquarters? And then we were escorted out. And on the way out, I agreed with Delbert to hold the pictures in the story for a week. The agreement to hold the story is referred to in journalism as an embargo. To give them time, as they say, they needed to take the baby back to wherever it was they had buried the baby, since when someone in their group dies, they don't have funerals or cremations, they send the baby back to the earth. James Link was the only photographer there, and the only person in the room with a camera. Did anyone mention John Africa that night? No. No. Okay. This whole night, the evening dinner, and the revealing of dead baby life, and no John Africa. And then we all went our separate ways. Ellen and I went back to the office. She related what she had to to the editorial staff. I went back in the photo, processed my film, turned it into the executive editor, Eugene Roberts, and went back to editing my pictures for the Sunday paper. Honoring the embargo, the story and the photo are kept under wraps for a week. So I took the best photo, two copies of it, and I took them to the executive editor, Eugene Roberts. He took the other picture and the roll of film, and I saw him put him in his office safe, and he told me to take the other print to the city desk where they laid out the paper, and he says... When they shoot it down the tube to engraving, you go down and get it from engraving once they've copied it and bring that print back to me, which I did. So I didn't keep or have any extra prints other than what was delivered to the executive editor. The negatives also went to the executive editor from my hand. Friday, April 9th, the story is prepped to run the following day. The graphics art director that was in charge of the photo department where I worked cropped the photo, and sent it to engraving. Saturday, April 10th, Philadelphia Inquirer, page one. Headline, Body of Move Baby, Seen at Move Commune. Byline, Charles Layton, not Ellen Karasik. Ellen Karasik is used as a source for the story instead of the writer. 
I'm just going to read the text from this page one part of the story. At a secret meeting last week at their headquarters in West Philadelphia, members of the Radical Move group displayed the remains of an infant that they said had been killed during a violent confrontation with city police five days earlier. Two city councilmen, two Inquirer staff members, a representative of the City Human Relations Commission, and a councilman's wife were shown the infant's remains and were pledged to temporary secrecy by the Move members, who said they did not want the body disturbed by authorities. They brought the body to their headquarters on the night of April 2nd in a small cardboard box. After witnesses had seen it and after an inquirer photographer had taken pictures of it, the body was taken from the house and returned to its undisclosed, quote, resting place, unquote. Members of MOVE said they were showing the body to select witnesses to substantiate the organization's claim that a baby had been killed in a clash between MOVE members and police. No medical examination was made of the dead infant, and there was no way of determining how the child had died, whether violently or from natural causes, or whose baby it was. The story continues onto page two, featuring James Link's photo with the dead infant in the box, but cropped out. They cropped the picture, cutting the dead baby out of the picture. So I raised hell. I was, I was highly pissed. The caption reads, visitors invited to the headquarters of the radical group Move in West Philadelphia were shown the remains of a baby in a cardboard box. Part of the box is visible at lower right. The group said the child had been killed in a confrontation with police March 28th. Those looking at the body are from left the Reverend Rennie Morgan, Delbert Africa, Councilman Joseph Coleman, Janie Blackwell, and Councilman Lucienne Blackwell. Using the accounts of the witnesses, including Ellen Karasik and James Link, the story goes into details. The corpse lay in a cardboard box on the floor. It lay in a bed of grass and dirt. There were shells in the box and some fruit and possibly some garbage. Link began snapping pictures. Ms. Karasik approached the box. I was about five feet away and the stench of the baby seemed to rise, she said. I looked at it enough to take down a description and then moved back to get away from the smell, and actually to get away from the whole scene. I was numb and sickened, and yet totally composed, because I felt that I was not even there. The scene was so bizarre, so mystical. Those flickering candles, it seemed so ritualistic. Coleman entered the room now and approached the box. Then the other guests came and formed a semicircle around the box, staring in dumbfounded silence. Let's all here be satisfied once and for all, Robert Africa announced, that the baby does exist. When I saw that baby, Blackwell said later, I was out of it. I wondered how I got involved in this. It was just something I never expected. It was very weird. Mr. Morgan said he wasn't sure why they wanted me there, but when I saw the baby, it was the last place in the world I wanted to be. Blackwell seemed especially uncomfortable at the sight of the body. Ms. Karasik said he kept looking out the window, watching the rats scurrying in the yard. Finally, the box containing the corpse was taken away. The six visitors were asked to remain a while longer in the stench-filled room. One of the MOVE members made everyone in the room promise not to reveal what had been seen until MOVE released the information. When the guests left the house, the rain had stopped. The air was not so cold as before, and it smelled especially fresh. 
In the week that has passed, editors, along with Link and Ms. Karasik at The Inquirer, have had to wrestle with the problem of whether to publish this account. On one hand, Ms. Karasik and Link had given their word to keep the matter a secret. On the other hand, there was the possibility that a crime had been committed and that the proper authorities should be notified. The Inquirer consulted two law firms about the legal aspects of the situation. Representatives of each firm said that in their opinion, neither the newspaper nor its employees were in legal jeopardy in connection with the possible concealment of a crime. An even larger consideration, however, was the newspaper's responsibility to keep faith with its sources. The Inquirer decided to abide by its promises to move members because it felt that any citizen should feel free to divulge information to the newspaper and to have his confidentiality respected. On Friday, however, the Philadelphia Daily News, which although published by the same company as the Inquirer, is operated separately, revealed in a column by Chuck Stone that there had been unconfirmed reports that at least two high elected officials, the wife of one of the officials and a minister, have viewed a dead baby on the move premises. Once the story was out, the Inquirer decided that it was free to publish this account. Here's James Link again. A week later or so, our Inquirer officers were contacted by the district attorney's office. They wanted reporter and photographer to come give a statement that they saw a dead baby on the premises. Well, journalistically, Ellen didn't want to do that. And journalistically, I'm not a snitch. I'm not going to do that. So the inquirer offered to give us a choice of two law firms. One of them said, testify. The other one said, don't testify. So I raised a question. I said, right about now, there's a New York Times reporter doing jail time for contempt of court for not giving up a source in a courtroom. I'm not going to jail for this. And Ellen agreed she ain't going to jail for this. Uh, around that time, I hired the services of a third attorney, and Mr. Link, not having had any medical training, not being a coroner, a medical examiner, or a doctor, cannot say whether anything he saw was dead or alive. And that's where we left it as far as I was concerned, so I had no reason after that to testify either way. So all I can say is I saw what looked like in the box, and I photographed it. Four days after James Link's photo and the story go out, this move story continues because the six move members are in court on assault charges varying in severity. There's six members of the group move were charged with various crimes assaulting policemen. For the disturbance and what I covered was a court hearing at which they were arraigned on the charges. This is former Philadelphia Inquirer reporter Mike Leary. I think as, as always when, when MOVE was in court that there was a fair amount of disruption. My recollection is that the MOVE members defended themselves and my story indicated that one of them shouted, which was not surprising in those kind of proceedings. So it was, I guess the whole thing was kind of unruly. What was no, notable was is that the police did make admissions that they had used their billy clubs or nightsticks um, during this fracas, and that they had done so, they said, in self-defense. In the Temple Archives, Bob locates a black-and-white photocopy of a booking photo for one of the MOVE defendants. You see his shirt? No, hold on. He's got blood all over him. Oh. He's a guy with a busted head and a bloody shirt. I agree, that is a bloody shirt. 
Police brutality, especially against black and brown citizens, back then and today, happens more frequently than not. And so I asked reporter Mike Leary to share what he saw in Philadelphia in the 1970s under Frank Rizzo as the police commissioner and then mayor. The inquiry we had repeatedly documented incidents of police brutality uh, against African-Americans, really a, a whole series of incidents, including street incidents in which uh, police violence was used. Uh, there was a case, the Noblin case. A man was uh, beaten down in clear daylight. There were uh, a series of stories that we had done about police coercing confessions in homicide cases and using uh, violence to do so, in one case even using a sword. So this was a very turbulent time in in Philadelphia. Racial relations were were fraught. The political division was, was very striking. Mike Leary's beat for the Inquirer at this time is the courthouse. And so he encounters MOVE. They had uh, sought to deliberately disrupt court proceedings, and they were clearly eager to gain publicity. Uh, They were constantly uh, coming over to the City Hall Bureau, the Inquirer City Hall Bureau, which was across the street from City Hall, and trying to get us to write about them. Initially, you don't want to give a group like that, the oxygen of publicity, because it just encourages them. So we wrote small stories about the disturbances when people were arrested and that sort of thing, but not done any kind of significant story. But, you know, their conduct kept escalating and, um, you know, became sort of (laughs) part of the uh, highly visible scene in, in Philadelphia. They weren't particularly credible in what they said. On the other hand, the police, um, you know, you would believe that the Philadelphia police were capable of anything in that, that period. I mean, Frank Rizzo had, had bragged about the Philadelphia police and said they could invade Cuba and win. There was very little credibility, I think, on either side. So it, it was very difficult to sort out who was telling the truth. I mean, obviously, in the case of this infant, you know, how the infant died was completely unclear and was never proven. The district attorney's office did not make a serious effort to, um, you know, find who this baby was and what became of the baby. Now back to our main interview subject, photographer James Link. After the story went to print, I didn't hear back from the MOVE people. James doesn't hear from MOVE, but he does get a phone call about baby life. I had a news source that said they knew where the dead baby's body was buried or reburied. One of the people I knew from North Philly, a bit of a, a street character, his girlfriend, I think, was the sister of Janine Africa or cousin of Janine Africa, and said to me that they buried the body over at this location in Strawberry Mansion. The source says that the body of Life Africa is buried in an area of Strawberry Mansion a neighborhood located east of Fairmont Park, a 10-minute drive from MOVE headquarters in Powelton Village. If you can get your boss to come up, I think it was $500, we'll take you over there and show you where the baby's buried. The Inquirer did not want to give up any money for anything to anybody about that dead baby. So they just lost the opportunity to either tell the police and be first on the scene when the police dug a hole in the ground to see if there was a dead baby in there. James Link's photo seems to be the last sighting of the baby boy known as Life Africa. May 12, 1976, Philadelphia Inquirer. Move group sues city. No byline. 
claiming that Philadelphia police officers have caused two miscarriages and the death of one of its children, members of MOVE have filed a $26 million damage suit against city officials in U.S. District Court yesterday. The suit claims that members have been deliberately harassed by police and deprived of their civil rights since 1974. This lawsuit by MOVE cites two miscarriages, including one allegedly suffered by Alberta, Africa. It alleges that police officers caused the death of three-week-old Life Africa. Life Africa has never been seen, alive or dead, by anyone outside of MOVE after April 2, 1976. There's some things to consider here. Janine Smith Africa was so young, just 20 years old, with an almost three-year-old son, when baby life was born and then allegedly dies three weeks later, with MOVE accusing Philadelphia police of murder. Pennsylvania's Vital Statistics Law of 1953 requires that each live birth is required to be reported to the Pennsylvania Department of Health. This same law requires that deaths be reported within four days of the date of death. That is law. May not be move law or move beliefs, but it's law. As far as the statute of limitations on prosecuting someone for breaking that law, I'm not sure. What really happened to baby life to cause his death? If what MOVE alleges is true, then police should be held accountable under the law for the murder of Life Africa. The only way to do that is to conduct an autopsy and get under oath testimony from witnesses. That can only happen if the body of Life Africa is found. MOVE belief is that life has no categories. Grass, ants, rats, dogs, lemon peelings, dirt, eggshells, human babies are all the same. They're all just life. The last time I saw the film negatives and the print was the night of the photo taken of the dead baby at the move location and turned into the editor. I never saw it again. I was never asked about it again. Have you ever been interviewed about this before? Nope. I had one last question for James Link Jr. Were you aware of another deceased moved child five months after this night? I had no knowledge of it. November 11th, 1976, Philadelphia Daily News. Headline, move, deputies caused baby death. In the story, move claims that deputies at the county courthouse beat move members, including pregnant Rhonda Africa. Legal name, Rhonda Harris Ward. Move claims the beating took place on Friday, November 5th. Rhonda gave birth four days later, and minutes later, the infant died. This is a civil affairs report from November 5th, 1976. It details this incident inside courtroom 788 City Hall involving the Move organization. It summarizes that Laverne Sims, who's actually Sue Africa using Laverne's name, and Delbert Orr, are sentenced, and as they're being led out of the courtroom by a sheriff, Gerald Ford Africa jumps up and shouts, Take me too. Then move defendants and supporters get up and stand behind the sheriff. Sue Africa screams. Fifteen move members begin throwing oranges. The sheriff is knocked to the floor, where he is punched, kicked, and has his gun stolen. The gun is later recovered at the scene. Four other court officers go to the aid of the sheriff and suffer injuries. Saturday, November 13th, Philadelphia Tribune, headline, Move members claim baby's death is a result of beating by sheriffs. 
Byline, Lynn Washington. Like before, Move presents a dead baby to the press, but not authorities. The difference in this situation, Move does not serve dinner, and both newspapers, which are not the Philadelphia Inquirer, print the full photo of this dead Move infant, which was not in a box of dirt and food scraps, but instead laying upon a large area of hay. I can't ask the parents of this baby boy what happened because they both died in the MOVE confrontation with police on May 13, 1985. Two baby boys born into the MOVE organization in 1976 to two different young women, already mothers. MOVE alleges they die because of police brutality, but refuses to file any official criminal complaints or present the dead infants for an autopsy to prove their claim of murder. Instead, they have them photographed by local press and then dispose of the bodies. I'm going to go back to Rain again, formerly Rain Africa, who you heard from earlier in the episode about how all the children born into MOVE knew the story of Life Africa being allegedly killed by police. They didn't even talk about whether they buried Life, whether like he was cremated like most other MOVE members were. Like Nothing was talked about it. And there was like, an emphasis from Ramona about how Life was indicative of how the system treats life in general. How is the story Move Tells of Baby Life used in Move's story to the outside world? Life is used as the shot heard around the world. That was the moment that it went from peaceful to confrontation. Like that was the moment where MOVE claims they felt threatened and understood the threat. And then they were going to attack. Rain is, of course, referring to May 20th, 1977, which happened six months after the second infant death in MOVE that the group blamed on police. This is when MOVE members step out onto their eight-foot-high platform in khaki coveralls, combat boots, berets, and holding rifles. This is guns on the porch. And they were going to expose the threat, which is the system, the Philadelphia police, the judicial system, so on and so forth. Every system. Which results in a year-long standoff with police, and then the first deadly confrontation on August 8, 1978, which results in the death of police officer James Ramp, injuries suffered by seven other first responders shot that day the brutal police beating of Delbert Africa, and the murder convictions of nine MOVE members. We always started with that. That's what we were taught. And that's where the real history from me, for us, and for what we told other people from my generation, began. You grew up knowing, like, these people were murdered by police and by the system. What about Rhonda's baby? I can only speak for myself. I didn't know Rhonda's baby existed. This is a letter from February 22nd, 1977, addressed to Commissioner O'Neill, the police commissioner at the time under Mayor Frank Rizzo. The letter reads, The people on the southeast corner of Pearl and 33rd Streets in West Philadelphia are apparently killing infants by exposure. As I was going by there at about 8.15 last night, I saw two people, a man and a woman, each carrying a naked infant from the house. The temperature was well below freezing. One of the infants had a dirty white rag over its head. Neither was moving or making any noise. I inferred that they were dead. I heard a woman crying inside the fence that surrounds the house. On several occasions, I have seen people carrying naked, seemingly lifeless infants out of the house after dark. 
Since the house is not heated and since the temperatures were below freezing on those occasions, I surmised the children were dead from exposure. These people belong to an organization called MOVE. I understand that they have reacted with violent vindictiveness to neighbors who have complained about them, so I do not want them to know that I have drawn attention to their exposing infants. I spoke to the person who wrote this letter 45 years ago, and their account was exactly the same. For 50 years, MOVE has said that they value life. It's their belief. The law we trust. All praises to the Lord of life. The power of truth is fighting. Not only the MOVE, not only the revolution, not only the giant act. If you have any information about infants who died in MOVE, the allegations of child abuse in MOVE, or about the 2002 unsolved murder of ex-member John Gilbride, please reach out. We will talk to you on or off the record. The truth matters. Each life matters. Pennsylvania's Vital Statistics Law of 1953 requires that each live birth to be reported to the Pennsylvania Department of Health. This same law requires that deaths be reported within four days of the date of death. That is law. May not be move law or move beliefs, but it's law. As far as the statute of limitations on prosecuting someone for breaking that law, I'm not sure. I know this episode was difficult. Thank you for listening. This episode was produced, written, narrated, edited by me, Beth McNamara. Amazing archival research by Robert Helms. The producers wish to stress that all individuals referenced in this podcast series are presumed innocent unless or until they are proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt in a court of law in the United States of America.